I want to introduce John Palfrey, who is the Executive Director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society and, and who has been an incredible force of, of nature in, in doing a lot of this work. Uh, John is a very, very dangerous person, uh, <laughs> incredibly dangerous. He is, has a reckless disregard for any barriers or boundaries when it comes to technology. And I want you to listen very closely to what he has to say uh, today because I'm sure that Mr. Ames uh, and all the other people who are responsible for this university and building are going to be turning in their graves when they hear somebody who's on this faculty talk about Harvard with such disregard and disdain as John Palfrey will do. But that's, that's what it's about. Uh, that's what he does. Uh, and the good thing is that all of these sessions are interactive. So after John's presentation, we will have an opportunity for discussion. We want you to think about your questions, your issues, uh, and, and your perspectives on these issues, university, uh, and, the, and the broader uh, topics that we'll be discussing today. But he's a professor of law here uh, at Harvard. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, he's written scholarship on the issues of uh, the, the, the uh, outer boundaries of technology. Uh, he is an amazing blogger, uh, and he's one of those people, even when you think he's asleep, uh, he's watching you. Uh, he, he's dangerous, I tell you. But please welcome to the microphone, uh, John Palfrey. Thank you. Professor Ogletree, if Mary Wong didn't recognize herself after that, I definitely don't recognize myself <laughs> after that, um, particularly the reckless part. I don't think I've ever been called that, but um, I'm going to try. I will channel Charlie Nesson, um, great friend and mentor to me, too, who is not here. And uh, to Charlie, I wish you were doing this instead of me, but I'm going to do my best Charlie uh, imitation. Um, as a Harvard Law School student, I took two classes in this wonderful room. It was differently organized at the time. It had sort of an amphitheater in it. Um, one was I took the basic course in lawyering from Professor Ogletree, learned what it meant to be a lawyer from a great man, for which I um, am always grateful, still hearing your words. The other class that I took in here was evidence from Charlie Nesson. Um, that was a different experience. Um, in the, uh, also from a great man and truly great teacher. Um, in the Harvard Law School curriculum, there are a bunch of classes you have to take right in the first year. Um, that's changing, thanks to Dean Kagan and Martha Minow and others. Um, there are a bunch of classes that you're recommended to take if you want to become a lawyer. Evidence is one of those in the second year. And as a student at the Harvard Law School, um, how many Harvard Law School grads are there here? You will have um, remembered a moment, um, if you were of the generation that had the possibility of learning from Charlie, you had two choices. You could either take evidence from somebody who was going to teach you the rules of evidence and prepare you to take the bar and be a lawyer, or you could take evidence from Charlie. If you take evidence from Charlie, it's quite a different experience. You go in, even though he wrote the casebook on evidence that everybody else teaches, um, you will not learn the hearsay rule. You have to know. You will not learn the hearsay rule. But you will learn something in a room like this about the nature of truth and the nature of truth in a digital age. Charlie is somebody who asks enigmatic questions um, and then expects you to run behind him and figure them out. Um, and so that's the purpose, I think, of this six conference. He's asked us to figure out what is the nature of university going forward in a digital age, um, and we're supposed to unpack it while he lies flat on his back listening out there somewhere. Um, so here's the uh, tour that I'm going to do, if I can get the wireless mouse to work, or maybe not. Um, uh, three areas of um, relevance, I think, as we go forward um, starting off the day. Um, one is from the perspective of students. Another is from the perspective of teachers, and last, the perspective of the university. What does it mean in an era in which students, as well as information, are born digital to be a university? What does it mean to each of us? Charlie uses as a teaching mechanism the Necker cube. It's this um, turning, spinning thing that when you look at it from one angle, it looks one way and from the other, another. Um, and so we'll start off by looking at um, this digital age from the perspective of students first, from the perspective next of teachers, um, and then last. Um, uh, from the perspective uh, of the university itself and hopefully end with some hard questions. And there is an hour for this session. If I go anywhere near an hour, I hope Colin Reinsmith or somebody will pull the plug um, and we'll t start talking um, uh, together about it. So four attributes, I think, um, of students in this era who are born digital. Nicholas Negroponte gave the opening session last night in the Casperson Room. Um, he wrote a book 10 years ago called Being Digital. Um, and the idea was in an era in which information and everything is uh, bits, not atoms, we all have to learn to be digital. 
The big change that I think we see today, 10 years later, is that um, it's not about being digital, it's about students who were born digital. It's quite a different generation, even a half generation later. Um, I think every generation thinks that it was the rock and roll generation before and you know, now we're something else, but I think this is a profound difference, the generation born digital compared to the generation that has learned to be digital. I think there are four relevant traits of the digital natives um, that we're talking about. Um, this uh, crowd of people relate to information incredibly differently. This crowd of information is always on. It's always got some digital device attached to them in some ways, always focused somehow on the converged environment um, of digital media. I think this means a great deal for us as a university to think about what it means to teach a generation of digital natives um, as they enter the, uh, enter the academy. Attribute number one, there are many more than the four that I will mention here, but attribute number one um, is digital natives have digital identities. That it's not just about having an identity in real space, it's about also having your digital identity. Charlie has his avatar. Charlie is a classic digital immigrant. He has figured out what it means to have these multiple identities. It's not necessarily good. We can have lots and lots of different digital identities. Um, but think about those who are entering school right now. It's a Facebook account. It's a MySpace account. It's an avatar in Second Life. It's a blog. It's a journal. It's um, a video clip on YouTube um, that creates the digital identity parallel to your identity in real space. Second, digital natives are classic multitaskers, but in a way heretofore unseen. Um, if you're a teacher, you um, get to uh, experience this in an odd way. Uh, in this building, I teach a, a little seminar upstairs um, uh, in the Morgan courtroom, a cute little room. Um, and for the last several years, every single student has had a laptop in front of them. That is a huge difference from previous generations of teaching somebody. The Socratic method in this great room is ordinarily Elizabeth Warren, a great contract professor, turning to Professor Ogletree and saying, Mr. Ogletree, please stand and state the facts of the Harry Hand case. It's quite a different matter when, in fact, everybody has a laptop in front of them, and all of a sudden you're talking about something important like democracy or uh, you know, somebody who's died in a case, um, and you'll hear laughing out there among digital natives, and you'll wonder, what are they laughing at? And of course, it's an IM conversation. Everybody's got multiple IM screens going while you are teaching them. Not necessarily a good thing, um, but plainly um, something we have to come to grips with. Third and relevant, I think, both from perspective of the uh, student, the teacher, and the university, is the nature of the information itself. Digital natives are born to presume that information is born in a digital format. What does that mean? It means it's ultimately completely malleable, right? It means that if it's a photograph, it's not taken on a camera that you then take down to Franti Digi and get printed out. It's on the back of your digital camera. And you just keep clicking, right? And then eventually, what do you do? You upload it to Flickr, and you have it go out in an RSS feed to anybody who wants to receive it. Um, in the video context, it's not Hollywood necessarily, where you have to go to a place. It's the video that you take with your cell phone, or the video that you take uh, and edit with a fancier camera and upload to YouTube, and then um, somebody makes $1.6 billion selling that technology and the stuff you created to somebody else. Um, in the context of books, Right? We still read books, thank goodness, um, and continue to read books, um, but the print itself is ultimately searchable. Right? Research now means a Google search to most digital natives. That's where they go, and increasingly so if Google uh, and Harvard and others succeed with the Google Books Project. Um, but the digital natives have come to perceive that the media that they're dealing with is in digital format um, right from the start. Last trait of digital natives uh, for this purpose, and far and away the most important, um, is the extent to which these young people are creators. These, this is a huge shift from previous generations. The extent to which, yes, they're still couch potatoes, but it's, you're able to treat information in such a way that you can provide a feedback loop. This is one of Charlie's favorite themes, the feedback loop. You have some information, you have information from wherever. It might be from Jamaica. It might come to a Jamaican a member of the diaspora in Hartford, um, and you participate through a feedback loop with that information. Um, think about the scholarship of Yochai Benkler at Yale or Eric von Hippel uh, at MIT Sloan School. They've talked about new modes of production, um, both in the open source context and in the, uh, in the economy broadly, um, but different incentives promoting creativity. That's a huge change um, from what we've seen before. Um, and perhaps, if the audio works, we will have um, a few examples, um, but maybe not for now. Um, this change is ultimately from consumers to creators. The, ocean, the idea is we've gone from 
uh, a generation of uh, people, all of us who are digital immigrants, um, who presume that we're consumers of uh, not just technology, but also the content, what Hollywood sends us, what Disney sends us. Um, but ultimately, there is an opportunity here, in the words of Terry Fisher and others, to create a semiotic democracy, um, a chance not just to put new meaning into content that exists, but to create new content and then to imbue meaning uh, through that. It might be through Second Life, which Charlie has um, a fabulous avatar in. It might be through RSS feeds, um, the extraordinary phenomenon of Wikipedia. Um, it might be through Flickr feeds uh, and so forth, but it is an enormous change. Um, these changes are not, to be clear, um, all good. There are huge problems that um, are associated with this generation of digital natives um, and the extent to which they're born digital. Um, there are uh, challenges that Henry Jenkins at MIT has identified. Um, the participation gap this is something that Nolan Bowie and others will take up uh, hopefully in the afternoon, the extent to which there are one billion people online today, but not six billion people online. Um, and that breaks down uh, along the digital divide as we've talked about before and something we have to emphasize. Um, there are challenges of ethics, new challenges related to plagiarism, for instance, in the context of the university. Um, there are issues of transparency, who created what. If you saw the Boston Globe yesterday, there was a headline above the fold that a court case was upended when a blogger was identified to be one of the parties in the case who had been writing um, under the name of Flea, unfortunately, um, about this court case. So um, as we think about teaching lawyers, um, as we think about being lawyers, um, what does it mean um, when there are these transparency problems, when you could be a creator in such a way that might upend your case? Okay, so segue um, from students, students who were born digital, to those of us who are digital immigrants um, who also happen to be teachers, um, and importantly, um, those of us who have to figure out how to teach um, in this environment where there are digital natives and the information born digital. Um, just as there are four themes for the um, students, let me touch on four themes uh, also for teachers. Uh, think about digital identities. Um, can teachers, who are themselves digital immigrants, and I think all of us, um, uh, or mo many of us in the room who are teachers, uh, consider ourselves digital immigrants, um, be reborn in some fashion? And do we need to be reborn? That's a question. Uh, you'll see the top is Charlie um, in uh, his uh, photograph of him in the flesh with his scooter. Um, the bottom picture, for those who can't see or don't know, that's Charlie's avatar. It looks maybe a few years younger, but about the same shape. Some people slim themselves down further than Charlie has. Um, that's a digital form of uh, his scooter. But importantly, that's the digital form of Ames courtroom. Um, Charlie has created a parallel universe um, to teach his class Cyber One. He taught a class this fall in which um, he taught to a group of students in the room uh, at Harvard Law School. He taught a group of Harvard Extension schools that his daughter led in Second Life in parallel at the same time. And he opened it up to anybody in the world. Hundreds of students came and participated in the class from Second Life. A terrible, terrible clunky technology in some ways, um, but also an environment in which people uh, came to learn. Whether or not this is a good thing or an important thing um, it's something, no doubt, that we have to grapple with and might grapple with starting today. Um, Facebook, another Harvard example. Um, some students recently, not very long ago at all, a few years, um, Mark Zuckerberg and his cohort started a business in a uh, Harvard dorm room, against the rules, I think, but in any event, um, doesn't matter to him now, worth a billion dollars or more. Um, he created um, something that simply mimicked as a social network what we've always had, that Facebook that you get in hard copy when you arrive at a university, you figure, why shouldn't this be in digital form? Why shouldn't this be something that is searchable, that is connectable, that creates different relationships? Um, when I uh, taught a freshman seminar a year and a half ago, um, I asked the group of people in the room um, who had just arrived, about 50 students, trying to figure out if they wanted to take my class. Harvard has this weird shopping thing where you have to present as a teacher to say, come to my class, right? So you have this first session in a room like this, and it was the first week of school, and I said to the Harvard freshman, how many of you have an account on Facebook? This is you know, almost two years ago. Every single hand was raised to say every single one of those 50 people had an account on Facebook. And I said to them, people from China, from all over the world, this wasn't just you know, kids from Newton, right? Um, I said, how many of you had an account on Facebook before you arrived at Harvard College? And the answer was 100%, right? This is penetration of a complete sort that re results in relationships being made before they arrive at university. Um, and it's not just an issue for the students, it's an issue for all of us, right? Which is, um, if you are a member of the faculty, should you have a Facebook account? 
right? I did not have a Facebook account for some time. I resisted this, um, but I was goaded into it by this freshman seminar after I had used this example, of course. So I put myself up there. I would put somebody else up there, but I was worried about the privacy implications. Um, I haven't worried too much about those who have identified themselves as my friend, I suppose. Um, but is your teacher your friend? Is the teacher somebody who ought to be connected to you somehow through Facebook? I think many of us would say, no, actually, that's a really bad idea. Others of us might say, in fact, we need to be on the level of and participating through the medium um, with which these digital natives um, are teaching and learning. Second, um, emergent tools. So how do we capture this extraordinary uh, move from consumers to creators? Is it sensible for us to rethink the way that we teach? Should we just use the Socratic method as we have for 100 years with great effect if you're a Charles Ogletree or a Terry Fisher uh, or uh, Elizabeth Warren? Or should we start using wikis? Do we allow for the creation of uh, new truth, new uh, information by the students themselves. Charlie Nesson um, works extraordinarily effectively with a wiki in his evidence class. So Charlie got to write the book, the hard copy, Nesson and Green on Evidence, but every semester that he teaches evidence, the students recreate it, right? We recreate it um, in a wiki online. And is it really, is that a false choice? Is it a false choice to be the great Socratic teacher, Elizabeth Warren, um, or the crazy, edgy, reckless teacher, Charlie Nesson? Or is there something that we can find together, perhaps, um, that combines the two. Um, Charlie, I mean it with all due respect. Of course, you are completely wonderful and the ultimate teacher. Um, is this about Harvard University? Um, I suspect that's um, not so. Um, is it about the university? No, I think ultimately, and this is one of the challenges that Charlie um, has put to us, it's about the idea of university, the ness of university. I don't quite know what he wants us to do with that taking away of the, the university. But I know it's relevant, and I know it's important um, as we go ahead. Um, and what is it about university as we go forward? Um, what is it about the university that ought to be reborn? Um, what is the digital identity um, of universities? Um, we took up this issue, as Professor Ogletree mentioned earlier, in a conference five years ago. This was in 2002. The tech bubble had burst, and we were retrenching a little bit to gaze at our own navel and to say, um, what does it mean for Harvard um, to have a digital identity? Um, Charlie talks in terms of cyber strategy. What is the university's cyber strategy with students now born digital? Though, I want to ask the question slightly differently. Um, students born digital, information born digital, um, how does university, not just Harvard, but all university, um, understand its own emerging digital identity? Second, um, if we take as granted that information is created in digital form, um, how do we respond to that change? What does it mean in the context of our own institution? You think about the Wall Street Journal. It's created not this format, not in paper. It's created digitally first, right? It used to be that we needed this print version to distribute it out. But right now, it's a reporter who calls one of us on the phone or emails one of us, right? Creates the story, writes it in digital format, and it is the strangeness of actually going to production to print it um, that puts it in that form. The information itself um, is born digital in the first place. Um, and what does that mean in the context of having libraries of the sort that we have uh, traditionally? There are a few uh, who are out there trying to answer this question. Um, Dan Gilmore, somewhere here in the room, I hope. Um, wonderful man. Um, working with uh, David Ardia and lots of others at the Berkman Center. He started the Center for Citizen Media. Um, one of the uh, sets of answers and sets of questions um, is being raised by Dan. What does it mean in terms of accuracy, thoroughness, fairness, transparency, um, and, God forbid, independence? Um, what does this digital information change from the perspective of universities mean um, if you take it from the perspective of one of the startups that's trying to break down the publishing mode for uh, information in science, to make more available the greatest research um, in the scientific, scientific field, the public library of science? Right now, this is a tiny startup, if you think about it in the context um, of great, big, wonderful uh, players in the publishing industry. But it's something that has great promise when you think about it from the perspective um, of the university. Third, there's a debate, a debate that has um, started to rock this campus and has um, rocked others as well, which is the debate over open, open access. Um, we heard about it in Nicholas Negroponte's opening talk last night um, in the context of one laptop per child. What does it mean, ultimately, if you take a small machine, a simple, cheap machine, and as Ethan Zuckerman put it, you put it in the hands of the next four, million pe four billion people 
in the world. Does that change the role of university once four billion new people could be connected to the information that we create and that our students create in the context of universities? And in fact, do we want ultimately to be hearing from those four billion people back into our cathedral uh, of knowledge? Um, think about it in the terms of the access to knowledge movement. Yokai Benkler and his colleagues, um, Jack Balkan and others at Yale have been um, pounding away at this question of how do we create greater access to knowledge um, throughout the world. The Open Net Initiative is a Berkman Center um, effort along with colleagues um, at the University of Cambridge, University of Toronto, um, and University of Oxford. I see Derek Bambauer in the second row, now a professor and one of the people who led the way on this effort. This um, is looking at the extent to which against the backdrop of all of this great new information and all of these four billion new people hoping to get Nicholas Negroponte's laptop, um, as states crack down on this, states seek to block the access that the students and others might have to the internet. Where is the university's role in this um, from the perspective of freedom of access to information um, and freedom of expression? Um, and fundamentally, what is the university when it comes to um, its own nature. If you think about the way we've created university, we've created them as cathedrals, right? This is the front of a great local university. This is the way you see it from the inside. Um, plainly, we've chosen cathedral, right? We've created a citadel um, to knowledge, cities on the hill in the form of universities. Um, Harvard is no stranger to this. This is um, Widener Library, of course, these extraordinary imposing um, buildings that stand for university. Um, there are friendly signs at the front that say Harvard ID holders only. I remember being a graduate of this very school of uh, Harvard College in between Harvard College and Harvard Law School and trying to get into Widener and what a hassle it was. You know, say I'm an alumni, I paid you know, $150,000 to go to this place, I can't get into the library. Um, is that the university that we're creating in a digital age? Is there any reason why that red sign is there, not just in physical space, but in digital space? That red sign is up outside our digital door, and that is a big issue at the moment for the universities, um, especially when you think about what Yokai Benkler has taught us. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? It doesn't have to be that way by any stretch of the imagination. John Wilbanks and the Science Commons crowd, um, Anne Margulies and the Open Courseware crowd, um, lots of others who are creating really, really cool things um, that are ways to get around this issue. Um, I think one of the questions, not to turn it back to the navel-gazing, but is for Harvard to ask itself today and every day um, from here on, which is, what is Harvard's answer to open courseware? We don't have one, right? We have wonderful experiments, but we have no big, huge, fabulous response or, much less, a big, fabulous, complementary effort to what MIT has stepped forward to do with OpenCourseWare. Let's figure it out, Harvard, but let's figure it out Cornell, too. I see Tracy Metrano, a great leader in this space, sitting here. Um, she and others could join together, uh, and no doubt is in many ways, um, to get this sort of thing going. Okay, so um, we've looked at it from the perspective of the student, from the perspective of teachers, from the perspective of the university. Um, as we go forward today in the workshop format that will come, um, what are the hard questions that we're presented with? One of the cool things about this conference, if you didn't go to is2k7.org, I urge you to do so from your laptops right now, those of you who are digital immigrants or digital natives, um, log on and you will see a series of questions. This is a great um, idea that Charlie had, which was put up a tool that allowed people to ask questions in the six months leading up to the conference. Um, it teed up a series of questions that we want to talk about today, um, and people got to vote on it. 7,000 votes were cast in favor of what are the most important questions. I pull upon some of them here, um, but urge you to look at what um, you all, we all created um, as well. So here's one. We are very grateful to the sponsors of this conference, one of which is Reed Elsevier, um, a key player in this business, uh, no doubt, somebody with a stake in the game, but also a place at the table in talking about this future. Um, but also Google. What is the relationship between the university and corporations like Google? We create a fabulous opportunity in the context of this deal that Harvard and other libraries have 
struck that Sid Verba and others have championed here. But what is the proper relationship between the university um, and these corporations as we go forward in this digital age? Should we be striking exclusive deals with Google? Should we be striking non-exclusive deals with Google? I don't even know what the deal is necessarily, but what is that relationship? When you have digital natives who are downloading and uploading music um, with absolute, complete, utter disregard for intellectual property law, which we know from survey after survey, what, in fact, is the proper role of the university in responding to those cease and desist letters that come by the thousands to our digital doorstep? And now when those letters have changed, not from cease and desist letters telling people to stop what they're doing, but to pre-litigation letters, is it the job of the university to be the handmaiden of the recording industry and deliver them to the literal doorstep of our students? Um, or should we do something else? Should we say no? Should we fight back? Should we be impish? And what is the right thing by our students um, and by our own broad mission? Second, um, and one that I suspect is inside baseball for some, but to me seems really, really important. Um, I'm obsessed with librarians. I think librarians are the best. Librarians just rock. And all of the political battles relevant to um, internet librarians are just awesome. Um, if you're Terry Martin, you're the head of the library, the great Harvard Law School library, or you are the incoming professor who is the head of Harvard College libraries, how do you spend your money? You go to the dean and you say, I need more money. How do you do that? What do you spend money on when information is born digital? What's the best way to invest in libraries today? If you were to start a new library, would you build Widener? Would you build Langdell over here in that format? How many students go and take a recorder off the shelf? How many law students are there here? Anybody recently a law student? How many has ever gone and you know, pulled out FSUP, da 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 da, right? You don't do that anymore. Would we build that? Um, would we invest in that? Um, or do we still need some version of the cathedral um, in which to house it? Um, how should we think about it? I think there's a parallel problem um, as Professor Martin and others invest not just in books but in digital services, things that allow us to have access to knowledge in some context for some period of time by virtue of a subscription. Um, if there's not a for sale doctrine in digital works, Tony Reese and others have written on this topic, um, what does that mean about paying for subscriptions? So if Terry Martin spends a large amount of the library's budget each year giving us access to fabulous subscription services, and the minute that the university's endowment goes down and his spend goes down, do we not anymore have access to all of that that which we were giving our students access if there's not a digital first sale doctrine? You don't buy the book and stick it on the shelf, right? You don't necessarily have access on an ongoing basis. Does that change in any way how you invest in a digital age? There are, uh, with gratitude, several people in the room um, who are funders in this space. Um, the Mellon Foundation, um, Omidyar Network, Hewlett, um, the Knight Foundation, MacArthur, um, fabulous foundations. What is the role, ultimately, of philanthropy in the context of funding and sustaining the generation of new knowledge? When the generators of knowledge could be those of us in the cathedral, but when there is a whole lot out there in the bazaar, what would you do if you were John Bracken at the MacArthur Foundation who had the charge of figuring out this new media thing um, and figuring out how do you invest in this? And is it about business models? Is the answer actually not to look to John Bracken at the MacArthur Foundation or somebody at Omidyar Network, but rather to look to Google? Is the right place to look to business models? Is the right place to look to the New York Times and Times Select? Derek Bach has asked us to look at this question and relook at this question, um, and I think it's essential that we keep doing it. What is the role of the extension school in a university um, of this sort when we could reproduce our knowledge um, and share it with lots of other people, but that becomes a business in and of itself, um, a revenue generator that might bring with it things that we're not prepared for? I told you I was obsessed with librarians. This is just sneaking in one more librarian comment. Um, I think one of the things that seems really interesting is the extent to which library scientists are thinking about their job really, really differently. They're thinking about what is the role of the research librarian or the person who is helping guide students in this digital space um, when Wikipedia is the first authority that pops to the top of most searches. I love Alexander Hamilton. If you search on Alexander Hamilton, the first thing that pops up is not 
an article by some great scholar necessarily. It's the Wikipedia entry. Now, people like me, obsessed also with Wikipedia, go in and prune this entry on Alexander Hamilton. So I have a pretty good sense that um, it's pretty cool and has lots of other information there um, that's useful. I trust that Lewis Hyde out there is um, pruning the Benjamin Franklin page on Wikipedia um, and that lots of other great people are um, who expert on things and are, are caring for this. But what is the role of the librarian uh, when a citation to Wikipedia might be the first instinct um, of a new generation. Um, and something that dominated the discussion um, yesterday in the smaller group who was preparing uh, for this, what is the impact of an outdated copyright system? Um, I think it goes without saying that this copyright system was not created for an environment in which students were born digital and information was born digital. It's hundreds of years old. Um, Terry Fisher in his book Promises to Keep has outlined the problems this has wrought in the context of the entertainment industry. But think about it across the board, not just for the entertainment industry, but with respect to the university. What does it mean for us to be operating in an environment in which the copyright system doesn't map to the practices that we have, uh, whether it's as students or teachers or others? Um, Pat Ochterhuis and Peter Yazzie are doing an amazing project in best practices, um, which seems to me one step forward. There are new models along the line of the Copyright Clearance Center and otherwise that can help. But is the role of the university to take a leadership position with respect to copyright? Should we be out there helping to improve the system to change it? Perhaps not just to throw out the old system, but to improve it in ways um, beyond the small experiment. And again, if Harvard is thinking about its response to open courseware, what is its response to the outdated um, copyright system? Okay, so those are some hard questions. I refer you to is2k7.org for more, and no doubt you have others in your mind. Um, but just um, by way of conclusion, to point um, back to the conference program um, and to point to the work of a few scholars who have done great work in this field. Um, I wasn't involved in the design for the conference program, but it has a lot of dots on it. Um, and I was trying to make over what do all these dots uh, mean. Again, this is trying to puzzle through Charlie and what he wanted us to get. Um, out of this event. Knowledge beyond authority. I'm not sure what that means either, but I suspect um, some people do. Uh, the dominant figure in our field for a long time has been Larry Lessig. He was the first Berkman professor um, a decade or so ago, a wonderful man um, who may be listening out there somewhere. Um, and he wrote the most important book in our field, um, perhaps most important before Yoke Benkler's uh, Wealth of Networks came along. Um, that book is called Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. It's been republished as Code 2.0. If you haven't read it, it's the Bible, please do. Um, and in that, he had a theory, um, a theory that had to do with the dot. He actually called it the pathetic dot. And I suspect this is where Charlie came up um, with his dots on this page. Um, the pathetic dot in this context is knowledge. Um, and he was looking at what does it mean to regulate what does it mean to control information in a digital sphere? And one of the things that he told us to do is look not just to the law, to what he called East Coast Code, that arrow coming in from over here, but to look to other modes of regulation and to realize that it's not just, say, the copyright law that's relevant here, but lots of other modes. Um, so markets, the last one he added, um, is the, uh, the mode of working with Google, right? It's using the market in such a way um, as to affect the production and the dissemination of knowledge. The architecture is the code itself. Are we building new architectures in digital format to affect the way in which knowledge is created and shared and taught? Um, or are we creating digital rights management systems, or as some would call it, digital restrictions management systems um, that lock it down? Um, are we focusing on social norms, the social norms of this digital generation of digital natives? Um, and how, in fact, is all of that affecting, um, as Lessig would put it, the pathetic dot? Um, David Weinberger is in the room, no doubt, somewhere slinking under his seat and very mad at me for doing this, but I have done it all the same. Um, David Weinberger has a new book. I don't get any royalties, but um, please buy it and gather it. We have several copies downstairs. It's quite wonderful. It's called Everything is Miscellaneous. David will have his crack at you at the end of the day, um, but he's just a lovely man and a very smart man. Um, and he too, I guess, thinks in terms of dots. If you look at the cover of his book, um, he's also got a few dots. There's a little dot down there. He may tell you later in the day what that little yellow dot means. I don't know. Um, but I was puzzling over it. Um, I love this book. Um, how does his set of dots relate to our set of dots here in Knowledge Beyond Authority? 
Um, one of the things that he tells us, and maybe he will explain this more, and you should read the book yourself to figure it out, um, he talks about hierarchies of knowledge. He says, since Aristotle, we've had a hierarchical view of what knowledge is and how you find it. He describes the Dewey Decimal System as you know, a dead white guy who came up with a system of sorting through knowledge, the Library of Congress or others. But that isn't the case anymore, right? That everything is miscellaneous, as he tells us. Information is created in a really different way. And all of us can imbue meaning and sorting um, power to information uh, in this digital age. And what is it that um, we should think about in a miscellaneous world? Another example of the dots that appears out there. Um, our colleagues at um, the Yale Information Society program have been running this wonderful series of conferences on access to knowledge. They too seem to think the dots um, are a good idea. We cannot lose sight, as they have told us, of the fact that universities have information that is relevant to people who are not in the room. Not only not in the room, but not fee-paying students. And who are out there eager not just to receive the information, but to participate in a feedback loop. Um, this set of dots, of course, maps in some ways to the Yale ISP's um, own logo, which is also a series of dots. Um, I have no idea um, what those things mean, but in any event, um, think of the international bit um, that those broad set of dots um, represents. And back again, ultimately, to Charlie. Um, so what did Charlie want us to know about this set of dots? Um, I'm not sure. I don't have any um, great answer. It leaves me with um, more questions um, than answers at the end. But what is it about um, this logo that, in fact, um, was his version of these dots? And what, are, what is the version um, of the dots that we can make of it? What are the new connections and new networks, um, new networks between people, but also um, information as we go ahead? So last slide, I promise. And then I'm going to turn over to Professor Ogletree to um, let people respond and talk about it. Um, two things. One note, um, historical note, uh, it was more than 10 years ago that Dorothy Zinberg and Charles Nesson um, held some first little conferences on this topic at Harvard. Um, but it was 10 years ago, uh, in a few months, I think, um, that the Berkman Center was created. And we will be going into um, our 10th year in the, coming, uh, in the coming academic year. And we look forward to celebrating that, um, uh, that time with you. Um, at the Berkman Center, we are thinking about what is our role, ultimately, in this whole story. Um, we're thinking about what does it mean to be a research center, the center that Charlie um, started and several of us have inherited. Um, what does it mean to be an inclusive research center when our students are born digital and information is born digital? Um, one of the things that we're doing is pushing to become a university-wide center. Why does that matter? Right now, we're based at the Harvard Law School, but that's crazy in some sense, right? In this environment, this is an interdisciplinary field. There are people in this room who work from all fields on these pathetic dots that are information. And we can learn much more by thinking about how the digital tools can allow us ultimately to be um, interdisciplinary. Um, but more important than what the Berkman Center does, I think, is what all of us do. Um, slightly cheesy title that Henry Jenkins had for an article um, in the Chronicle of Higher Education. But he um, wrote about university with a Y-O-U. Um, I think it's helpful, though, as a, as a closing note. We're in the era of YouTube. Um, we're in the era of uh, a time in which Time Magazine has made you the person of the year last year. Why was that so? It's because we're all participating in a digital revolution that I think is just gearing up, that's just getting started, and which is empowering more people to participate in more ways and more democracies um, and in more institutions in the creation of knowledge than ever before. And I think the closing note of this talk, but the opening note to the conference, is really to say, what are all of us going to do with this opportunity to recreate what it means to be university. There's a lot to be cherished. There's a lot to be celebrated. There's a lot to be preserved. But there is so much more to be done. There's so much more to be done if you think about being um, Juan Carlos and others starting a new center in Italy to do this kind of thing. So much more to be done if you were thinking about building the next library. Um, and ultimately, without having to put any bricks and mortar down at all, what does it mean to make a university be reborn? And how do all of us participate in doing that in a way that is much more inclusive um, and much more taking advantage of the opportunities um, that this technology creates than we've ever done before? So with that, welcome and thank you very much. Job. I told you he was dangerous. <laughs>
but in a, but in a very good way. This is uh, a, a very comprehensive uh, and useful introduction to what we're going to be doing now. Uh, and let me just give you a little bit of the ground rules. Uh, uh, we will be leaving here in a few minutes, uh, going outside if you'd like to walk from here over to Pound Hall. All five of the uh, sessions will be held in Pound Hall. Uh, Professor Nolan Bowie's session on the digital divide will be in room 506. There's no general counsel session, but he'll be in room 506, and I hope that you'll uh, join him there. The other sessions are as listed. The uh, university agenda for fair use is in pound 100. The alternative university models for scholarly publications, pound 101. The uh, connecting university to basic education is uh, pound 107. And university and its library is in pound 102. But Professor Nolan Bowie's session will be in pound 506 on the fifth floor about issues Im Im impacting the digital uh, divide. And I think given our time, that we'll take a few minutes for questions. Uh, uh, and then I think that uh, you can go over, there'll be refreshments, water, coffee, other things. I think that you might go up to your rooms at 10.45 instead of 11. That'll give you two hours, uh, two hours to uh, engage and talk and reflect. There will be box lunches on the first floor at 12.45. You can pick up your back box lunches, continue your discussions, walk around the campus. Uh, and then the afternoon sessions, as listed, will start at 1.45 until 3.30. And then we'll take a break. We'll come back here to do an overview and analysis of what's going on. Now, downstairs, uh, there are some students. They are not watching this uh, on the, on the uh, internet. They are preparing to take the bar exam. You never know that they're actually not watching this. It's Barbary, after I, all. I, I right? hope, this is not your class. I hope they are not IMing when they're trying to become lawyers, but you never know. This is Harvard University. So be quiet as you leave, but let's take some questions. Uh, and I'd responses. love it not to be questions, but rather just a dialogue among the group. I'm not. Uh, and there's a no microphone here. Yeah. Do we have microphone passers? Who wants the first comment in the pl plenary session? Uh huh. It was that good, huh? No comments. Ethan? We're going to put me on the spot, huh? Yeah, well, somebody's got to do it. Okay. Um, JP, one of, the, one of the interests that I have in all of this, as you well know, is the question of how the internet internationalizes or fails to internationalize some of these issues. I think one of the most interesting possibilities out of this about becoming a digital university, a university where it's theoretically possible for anyone to participate, um, is this idea that there's a great deal associated with what we think of as Harvard that suddenly becomes a great deal less exclusive when we're suddenly sharing this courtroom, whether it's in Second Life or whether it's in cyberspace, with potentially billions of other people. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about is there a way that universities hold on to some sort of good aspects of selectivity, exclusivity, standards, prestige, all of these things that we sort of know are inherently associated with this, or at least I assume are associated with this. I never got admitted to this university. I just sort of snuck in later as a scholar. But how does that work in a context where this university could theoretically be open to a billion kids with laptops? I wonder if I'd rather not answer any questions, but rather give it to others who have thoughts on this score. Awesome. All right, Zach. So, um, I dropped out of high school, and I wandered through various jobs, trained as a cook, did all these things. I ran into IT, and I found some, some various materials from my, MIT's OpenCourseWare. And this was like a light coming on. It was wonderful stuff. Uh, the structure and interpretation of computer programs, MIT's classic introductory computer science program, great stuff for me. However, MIT would never have let me in the door. They didn't lose any exclusivity by sharing their information. In fact, they probably gained a better reputation by choosing to share. The, the, inst the physical institute of university, the power of it is in part presence. It is the fact that you are there able to exchange with people who know, that you're able to build a real relationship. <coughs> sharing knowledge, having thousands or hundreds of thousands of virtual students doesn't really change that physical presence. That's incredibly powerful and just can't be replaced. Not now. There must be dissenters in the room from the Harvard community because we haven't really done that much in response, right? 
Maybe not. Maybe they haven't, may they haven't come. This is all uh, people who are Terry? Good. Terry Martin. Hold on, hold on, it's coming. We've got lots of digital distance people for you to talk to. My understanding is that uh, more Harvard people use the open courseware system than MIT people do. Uh-huh, well that's a good thing. <laughs> so why do we need to develop one? Uh, I, another question. You, <laughs> why you, indeed, right? You, you said that it was uh, uh, bad to have a Harvard ID in front of digital Harvard. And yet you're taking money from um, Reed Elsevier, who I give several thousand dollars a year to. Mm -hmm. I suspect the, several is a large version of several. On, on the condition that we don't share it beyond Harvard. Fair enough. Anyone want to respond to that? Yeah, back row here. Do we have other mics that could go around? Or just one? I'll speak up. All right, but we, we, we want you on a mic because we've got uh, distance people. So not so much a response to the Riedels of your question, uh, though that is a serious one. But MIT's OpenCourseWare, it stands alone. It's unique at the moment. What happens as more and more institutions enter that fray? And how do they differentiate themselves? And does it matter as much, or does that elevate the role of the individual, and do we get uh, do we get institutions, universities start fearing citizen professors uh, in the same way that, that mainstream media fears uh, citizen reporters, citizen journalism? Before you pass the microphone, what's your thought on your question? Say again? What's your thought on the question that you raised? I, uh, as a librarian, I'm interested in where, you know, where, who's going to be creating knowledge in the future. Um, I don't take a position on where we go with it. Some so questions gonna, up front. Here's the microphone. It's going to take a moment to come on. It's not going to work. You'll get next one. Can we pass to somebody with that mic, please? Sorry, it'll take some. You're on. Uh, one she, of the she's things. Not actually, she's know. on. Oh, she's on. Okay. Yeah. on yes. um, one of the issues in Closer. the courseware is that one of the big effects is on small universities around the world, small colleges, schools, where it's the instructors who use the open courseware. And this has an enormous impact. It's not just citizens professors, people in their homes in Newton that are using it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Comment over on the left side. Uh, at the end of your time at one of these major universities, you get two very different rewards. On the one hand, you've gained, hopefully, a body of knowledge. Uh -huh. And on the other, you get a sheepskin. Now, I don't think the universities have to worry about opening up the access to the knowledge because they're still going to have very tight control on who gets the sheepskins. And until there's a change in the society in general, those people are still going to be stocking the faculties of other universities. There will still be the cachet of having a degree on your resume. Um, and so those are very different kinds of rewards that one gets for affiliation with a university. And I don't think they're necessarily in conflict. I think it's a great point. Would you mind passing the mic to Professor Terry Fisher right there in front of you to put him on the spot? In IS2K2, Terry Fisher moderated a panel which was talking about, among other things, the brand of university. Um, and he had a lively dialogue among people here. Um, and there was not necessarily consensus that we should do this sort of thing for um, not necessarily reasons of control, but reasons of brand. And Terry summed up at the end of that with a line that I will never forget, um, which was, yes, doing this will dilute Harvard's brand, and yes, we should do it anyway. Um, I wonder if you might build on that conversation, and, and perhaps reflecting five years later, um, do you see it any differently? Well, I think actually the, um, the environment, both at Harvard and in the university community as a whole, has shifted in the preceding years. Um, uh, in the direction um, that I was intimating at that conference. I think there is an increasing recognition that it's the responsibility of any great university to reach ever outward and not to conserve its resources, not to conserve the economic power of its brand. Uh, an example of that would be the, um, the ongoing um, uh, Google book search system in which not just Harvard but several other major research universities are deliberately forfeiting what you might think of as their comparative advantage in, um, in uh, 
uh, harboring the greatest collections of books in order to confer um, access to the same body of knowledge upon the world at large. Uh, now, a slipperier question that was slippery then and still remains slippery, I think, is, um, is dilution of the quality of the service that can be delivered to the constituents physically located within the university because one is investing energy and time in the world at large. As faculty members spend less time supervising PhD dissertations, teaching seminars, and lavishing time on their own students because they are reaching ever outward, the quality of the education within the walls may begin to diminish. That's much more worrisome, in my view, than the dilution of the brand. Uh, my question is, 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 there, is there any evidence at all that, that MIT or Harvard has had any brand dilution as, as a result of anything they've done? I mean, Harvard has actually had a, a, had a um, you know, continuing education program that gives degrees at a very much reduced price, many often by courses taught by, the, you know, people like me, the same people who teach the courses during the day. That's been going on for 50 years or something like that. Um, I personally sit on both sides of this because I'm a part of the gatekeeper. I'm a member of the Harvard College Admissions Committee, and you can go today and watch my entire spring term uh, Harvard College uh, course that, uh, that these people go through this incredible screening process to get into, you can, you can it's, it's up there for free today if you want to watch it, but somehow people see, still keep uh, applying to Harvard, and uh, even though they, they could have even watched the course a year ago. So um, I just don't, it's not, I, I think we, we're kind of assuming there's going to be a brand dilution effect if we give all this stuff away, but I, there hasn't been a, the slightest bit of the beginning of an edge uh, to, uh, to that. And I guess one thing I would say in, in, in addition to the mere quality of the sheepskin, the, the, the quality of the sheepskin is associated with the quality of the people who get it. So the admissions processes at these universities are playing kind of some kind of however valid, at least uh, uh, widely recognized uh, uh, quality control mechanism. The question over here in the front. For those not in the room, that was Harry Lewis, who is not just a professor here, but a former dean of Harvard College. This is not anybody saying this, right? We'll just go here and then back. Just to respond to that, I would, the thing that troubles me is I think almost more troubling than the idea that this is somehow going to dilute the Harvard brand or dilute the MIT brand is that it will actually make it more prominent. I mean, one of the things that I find really striking, you see that logo, it's not open courseware, it's MIT open courseware, and already I, I think we have a situation with higher education where MIT and Harvard are such huge brands, and you see literally, you know, kids coming from around the world that visit Boston, they have their pictures taken in front of both Harvard and MIT. I've seen this. It, it's just amazing. Every time you drive down Mass Ave. Um, and so I so think maybe we need those opening cathedrals this up. anyway for photographic purposes. Huh? Maybe we need those cathedrals anyway for exactly, photographic purposes. Exactly. Maybe so. But, you know, I, I think it expands the brand. It, it strengthens it. But I think the danger is it becomes almost as much of a marketing tool, a way of strengthening the brand for the purpose of strengthening the brand as much as it is for extending knowledge. All right, there's questions here and here and, and Nolan here. Really and uh, Nolan, go ahead. Um, I attended the uh, Berkman uh, conference that I believe was titled uh, Digital Identities. Right. And I very much recall uh, Terry Fisher's uh, comments on a panel discussing brands, and he said that the uh, Harvard brand was uh, treated very much like uh, Ferrari treats its brand, uh, in that um, it creates a uh, artificial exclu exclusivity through its admissions process. It makes it very expensive, and it sues like hell when the brand is breached or misused. Um, I then sat on a, uh, I led a dinner panel discussion uh, talking about the issue as to what Harvard's uh, role and responsibility was to communities beyond the, its ivy walls, to Cambridge and Boston, to Massachusetts, to the United States, and to the world. And I believe um, uh, President Summers spoke to that issue and essentially said that 
Harvard makes uh, more than this uh, adequate uh, contribution to uh, the local community, the national community, and to the world uh, by teaching um, and uh, writing and research and producing uh, global scholars and leaders. And that implying that there was no other obligation to uh, disseminate uh, knowledge from Harvard with the Harvard brand. Um, I'd like to hear more about that later today. Okay. Question in the back. Where's the microphone over here? Where is it? I was moved okay. over here. <laughs> I was moved by the comment that the quality of the sheepskin is um, really in part the quality of the people who get it. Uh, and I'm thinking of the ways, the multiple ways in which we exclude from the start. I mean, you can watch this in, in, in early grade school. You, uh, we exclude people from even trying to get it who could be uh, uh, just perfect quality. Um, here are a couple of things that I'd like to put into, uh, into the discussion. No corporation will spend money or effort on any kind of venture that they don't think will succeed. And that's true of people, too. Um, kids won't study, won't put in the effort to learn something unless they figure that that venture has a reasonable chance of being successful. It's possible to watch generally in subtle ways, but sometimes in um, startlingly overt ways. Um, it's possible to watch kids get taught that they will not succeed while they're being cajoled to put in extra effort. I'm wondering whether the democratization of education that um, this open uh, digital environment uh, provides, I'm wondering whether that can help break uh, some of the ways in which we rule people out long before they ever get to the admissions office. Well, finish the paragraph. What do you think? You wonder. What do you think? It will or will not rule people out? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Given, given that um, lots of people will speak with gr great passion about trying to break this down and that we haven't succeeded yet, I don't know whether this is the case, but I'm here at this conference hoping that somebody in this world will have yet other ideas about that. Um, so far what I've watched, I mean I, I am a watcher of schools, um, I will see people, um, not too many who are malevolent, but there are those too, but people who really see themselves as very benevolent, nonetheless preserving a system that automatically excludes kids from the start. Okay. Sometimes by as subtle as a, a method as saying, look, I don't want to badger you. I mean, I don't want to give you a hard time. You are just not going to be ever a math student. So let's put you somewhere else. Okay, let's take a couple more comments before we break. Uh, the microphone, okay. Hi, <clears throat> I'd like to first of all say thank you. It's a wonderful assembly of uh, people who are very smart and have access to resources, sort of a super network of networks. And I think there's a, an incredible power that comes from that. I'd like to float something, and, and I work with brands and other things. The thought is simple. Brands become great one way or another. MIT, Harvard have become great. The trick for a brand is to stay great by continuing to change as the surroundings change. So what I'd like to suggest is we look at this and say there are plenty of problems in the world where intelligent uh, use of information, application of, of ideas, thinking happen at a very high level because right now it's not going on in government at the level that it could. It's not going on in the communities at the level it could. Some leadership needs to be shown. I think that university is the perfect place to demonstrate that leadership. It's safe to have ideas. It's safe to explore ideas. It's safe to have a lot of very powerful people try them in their own networks and come up with potential solutions. And what I hear from people I know in the community, in government, and also in private industry is there's no general contractor. There's no general contractor for fixing very high-level problems. You need systemic solutions. That means networks of networks. So what I'd like to suggest is that Harvard and MIT keep their brands great by becoming the general contractors, whatever that means, so that we're solving some very high-level problems 
through great thought and great dialogue. Great point. Uh, there's here on the side. Yep. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about open courseware and sharing information with the world, today it seems we've talked a lot about balancing what's you know, largely altruistic value of this against things like losing the prestige of exclusivity or diversion of resources away from students on campus to students elsewhere. Um, and then it was even suggested that maybe there's some benefit from marketing the name or that may or may not be a benefit. I'm a student and I'm certainly concerned about some of those things, but I wonder if we're not considering the possibility of um, adding value to the knowledge itself by uh, extending these channels, as in does the information just need to flow outward or by extending these communications to the community at large, can we bring them back in and benefit ourselves? The way uh, Professor Nesson talks about CyberOne, and this is a question I asked Professor Nel uh, Palfrey yesterday, um, he says one of the things he likes best about CyberOne is having the community at large participate and it makes it a much stronger experience. And yesterday, uh, President Bach lamented it's hard to teach students today if they're gonna retain only so much and, and carry only so much to the future. If you establish these, it is a more, the learning is a more interactive, embedded process with the society to whom we're connecting, couldn't that create a fuller learning environment for even the students here? Thank you. We're gonna just take two more questions. Let me just remind everyone here and those who are uh, watching and, and following on the internet, that we do have a question uh, tool on our conference website as IS2K7, that you can, oh, .org, you can go and uh, post questions now and forever as a continuing uh, dialogue. We'll take a couple more questions. We'll continue this dialogue throughout the, the course of the day. A question here, and then one question up front, then we're gonna take a break. Well, I have a broad question. I'm Jason from UMass Boston, and um, I was wondering if, if there is a, a democratic core to the digital project, and I, I think there is. How far are elite institutions like UMass, um, like, like uh, Harvard and MIT, willing to allow themselves to be carried along with it? I mean, are, are, how, how far are you all willing to lose your eliteness, right? Can I, can I expect you all to join me in the project of creating a UMass Cambridge, since you both were public institutions at one time, or, or is it going to stop somewhere? Are you still going to remain elite training grounds? Uh, and this question I would, you know, broaden out to all elite institutions of higher education uh, around the world. Great. Uh, final question over here. Yep. Uh, we've been talking a lot about what I think of as the artifacts of knowledge, and I'm wondering about the social components and whether uh, strong com connections can truly be made at a distance. In other words, are there certain aspects of digital interactions that are going to really function as relatively hard barriers here? Okay. Well, there, uh, there's an abundance of great ideas and issues, and uh, we hope you'll take some of those up in your sessions and with us as well. Again, Professor Bowie on the Digital Divide is in pound 506. The uh, first session on the, the university agenda for fair use, pound 100. Alternative university models for scholarly publications, pound 101. Connecting University to Basic uh, Education, pound 107. University in its library, pound 102. Lunches will be available at 1245. Thank you all, and we'll see you back here at 330.